Right. So, so it was. It's the third pandemic coronavirus to arise in the last twenty years. The first was SARS one in in two thousand two. The second was MERS or Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome in two thousand twelve. But the difference between those two viruses and SARS CoV two, the current cause of COVID, were that that if you got infected with SARS one or MERS, you were sick. There was no asymptomatic infection or even mildly symptomatic infection. So it was very easy to identify who was sick and who wasn't. To essentially put a moat around them and their contacts, so that you could essentially stop the spread of that virus. So neither of those viruses really caused a single case of hospitalization or a single case of death in the United States. Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is a podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser, positive health psychologist, also keynote and TEDx speaker and author of Rejuvenating, the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. As listeners of the podcasts know, my hope is to always bring you informative guests who lead their own lives with enthusiasm and have different ways to help us become better versions of ourselves. Become better, becoming better versions of ourselves includes becoming our healthiest selves. And today we are truly honored to have uh, as our guest, Dr. Paul Offit. Some of you may not be a stranger to Dr. Offit's name because he's appeared uh, very often on TV shows, uh, news broadcasts, and so on, talking about his topic. Dr. Offit is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And the Maurice R. Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology and Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine for infants, and he's published uh, more than 180 papers in medical and scientific journals. In the media, he has appeared on uh, the Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, and many other programs. His outspoken advocacy for science-based medicine has drawn praise from around the world. Dr. Offit is one of the country's most trusted experts on vaccines and COVID-19. And while I had hoped uh, that by this point that we wouldn't necessarily need to have an expert on COVID-19, um, I was thinking recently, I actually now know more people uh, who have had COVID-19 recently than I did during the what was the height of the epidemic. Um, and so it's obviously uh, a timely guest, and we're really honored to have uh, Dr. Offit with us. So, Paul, welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. It's great to have you with us. Thanks so much for asking me, Dr. Kaiser. I appreciate it. Okay, well, let's get into it. But first of all, I always like to start out by, maybe not always, but most of the time, like to start out by asking somebody about their personal journey. Uh, you know, how does one become a vaccine expert, a COVID-19 expert? Um, how does one become a, a doctor for children? And how does one 
uh, really become a real spokesperson for this cause. So um, can you take just a couple of minutes and running us through your through your history? Sure. Um, I, I, I think the influences that shaped me most were um, I was a um, I was born with club feet. Um, my uh, my right foot was never quite repaired correctly, and so the the decision was made to operate on my right foot, which is probably a terrible idea since it took another four decades before that operation was actually um, in any way uh, perfected. But so that it was it was a botched operation. I ended up in a polio ward because this is what happens in in the mid nineteen fifties if you are in a chronic care facility, an orthopedic facility, you're in a polio ward. So. I remember that moment. I mean, it was, you know, this was, um, you know, there, there weren't like therapy dogs or televisions or, you know, particularly nice nurses. I mean, you pretty much just laid there by yourself. Your parents uh, could visit you one hour a week on Sundays from two to three. My mother was uh, had a problem with my brother's uh, um, with pregnancy, and then my father was a traveling salesman, so they never visited me. So I just remember staring out that window waiting for someone to come save me. But what I remember most of the children, other children in that ward who were getting the Sister, sister Kenny hot pack treatments, which could cause an enormous amount of pain. Um, you saw children in iron lungs, and it just I saw those children as vulnerable and helpless and alone. And I think the scars of our childhood invariably become the passions of our adulthood. I think that's the reason I went into pediatrics, to be quite frank. And then in terms of pediatric infectious diseases, you know, the people that I, I was with in medical school or during my residency, it was the infectious disease doctors that I thought were the most sort of compelling and interesting. And so I chose infectious diseases, ended up working at Children's Hospital Philadelphia in, in Stanley Plotkin's division. I mean, here was a man who created the rubella vaccine, who did important work on the anthrax and rabies vaccines, and he had a project to try and make a rotavirus vaccine. And so that's what I did for the next 26 years. So I think that that's what influenced me. That's really, really interesting. It's also interesting to talk to another person who knows about the the, the polio epidemic uh, as more than just history. Uh, I grew up in Minneapolis, where the Sister Kenny Institute was, and uh, uh, and, and some of the the people that I grew up with actually did get polio, and some some having longer term effects than, than others. So, uh, and kind of uh i had put that out of my mind until the uh until recent times when covid kind of presented the same or similar scare to what we were experiencing at that point and so i'm wondering uh again i've lived a good number of decades since since those times uh without having uh, confronted something like COVID nineteen. Uh, what's what's different about it? Why did this become such a difficult to control thing and such a uh, a factor in so many people's lives? Right. So, so it was. It's the third pandemic coronavirus to arise in the last twenty years. The first was SARS one in in two thousand two. The second was MERS. Or Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome in 2012. But the difference between those two viruses and SARS-CoV-2, the current cause of COVID, were that, that if you got infected with SARS-1 or MERS, you were sick. 
there was no asymptomatic infection or even mildly symptomatic infection. So it was very easy to identify who was sick and who wasn't, to essentially put a moat around them and their contacts so that you could essentially stop the spread of that virus. So neither of those viruses really caused a single case of hospitalization or a single case of death in the United States. Then SARS-CoV-2 arose. And I think people assumed that it was going to be similar to those first two, but it wasn't because it could clearly be transmitted asymptomatically. And so everybody, therefore, was potentially a source of infection for you. We became scared of, of other people. Think about where we were in 2020. We didn't have um, antivirals until October of 2020. We didn't have um, monoclonal antibodies until uh, November of 2020. We didn't have vaccines until December of 2020. So for mostly for the entire part of 2020, what did we have? Isolate, quarantine, mask, and test, test, test. We were scared of our neighbors. I, I mean, people were scared to ride buses or, or you know, do anything in a public place. So, so that's where we were in, in 2020. I mean, we eventually had those therapeutic and preventable options by the end of 2020, but not, not during that year. That Think about it. We had 200,000 American deaths by May. We had 500,000 American deaths by December of 2020. I mean, it, this we've experienced, most people have never experienced anything like this. Yes, uh, I, and I remember, I mean, uh, when it first came out, we didn't know you know, would we ever leave the house? Was it safe? Was it safe to open the windows? Which probably was the best thing that we could do, and people just didn't know. Um, was this? Uh, I guess preventable is the wrong word, but could this have been controlled better from the beginning, or did we just not know enough? It could have. It's always easy in retrospect, but I think certainly China was not a good neighbor. I mean, they. Um, knew very early on that there was a, a virus that was spreading, starting in the Wuhan area of China, that was killing people, and they didn't really let everybody know about it quickly. They didn't allow uh, scientists from other countries to come in and examine what was going on to figure out what the origin of the virus was, because this was an animal-to-human spillover event that occurred in the western section of the Hunan wholesale seafood market around November, December of, of, uh, 20, of 2019. And so they weren't a good neighbor because we, we could have been alerted to that much more quickly. I think that in our country, we went through a lot of denialism. Um, one is we didn't very quickly develop a test. Uh, we, we put that only in the hands of the CDC. They had trouble making a test that had the right positive and negative control. So there were other countries that had a test that was far more quickly available than we did. That was a mistake. I think that we um, could have used the Defense Procurement Act to purchase masks, ventilators, uh, gowns, um, much more quickly than we did. I think that the President Trump at the time um, just uh, said, look, this is all going to be over by uh, April, mid-April of 2020. That was wrong. And I think denialism doesn't work for things like this. So I think we could have done better. What we did right, <laughs> that, is, that is to me really the most remarkable scientific or medical achievement in my lifetime was make a vaccine. I mean, think about it. We had we had isolated and sequenced this virus by January of 2020. 11 months later, using a technology that had never been used to make a vaccine before, messenger RNA, we had done two large clinical trials, Pfizer, a 40,000 person trial, Moderna, a 30,000 person trial, two large clinical trials that was the size of any typical adult or pediatric vaccine trial against a virus that had unusual biological and unusual clinical characteristics. I think it was the most amazing scientific and medical, medical achievement in my lifetime, amazing. 
Um, and that vaccine, the mRNA vaccines, have certainly stood the test of time for being safe and effective. Well, that vaccine uh, is something that many of us are, are familiar with. Uh, and what's been interesting to me over the years, uh, it, it seems like the vaccine really helped, uh, did a major job in interrupting, you know, what had been kind of a rampant kind of thing going on. Um, over the last couple of years, though, I've noticed that uh, it's become kind of a, a political issue. And I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, and, and I, I guess it's not just related to, to COVID, but there's, there seems to be an anti-vax, um, I don't know, phenomena that, I mean, I, when I was growing up, when my kids were growing up, uh, I mean, the, the, this wasn't even an issue. Vaccines are good. Prevention is good. Um, what, how, how this get so, so politicized? Well, I think we live in a more cynical, more litigious, more divided time than we did, say, in the 1950s or 60s. Um, you know, we we accepted that, that, you know, the public health agencies were working on our benefit. We accepted the fact that pharmaceutical companies were making drugs to save our lives, were making vaccines to save our lives. We were far less cynical and litigious. I, I do think one thing that has changed that I never would have predicted is there never was a politics to the anti-vaccine movement. I mean, on the left, it was kind of, you know, don't inject me with these foreign agents with chemical names. I only want to, you know, experience things naturally. Don't inject me with adjuvants or manufacturing residuals or, or preservatives, et cetera. And on the right, it was a libertarian, don't, the government shouldn't tell me what to do. I think what's happened is it swung wildly to the right. And, and I think the reason is it was COVID mandates. I think, uh, first of all, I think it made sense to mandate vaccines. We had nothing else. Uh, you know, we, we when, when we first were able to mass produce and mass distribute, mass administer vaccines, which was another remarkable accomplishment. I mean, we didn't have an infrastructure to mass vaccinate adults in this country, but we did. We were vaccinating a million people a day, two million people a day, three million people a day, starting in December of 2020. And by May of 2021, we had 70% of the U.S. population vaccinated. Then we hit a wall. 30% of the U.S. population simply did not want to get vaccinated. We still had an overburdened healthcare system. We still had thousands of people dying every day. We knew that the vaccine worked to decrease infectious virus shedding. We knew that the, if you were exposed, we knew that the vaccine worked to decrease transmission. We knew that the vaccine worked to keep you out of the hospital. Why was it your right to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection? And so we mandated vaccines. And, but what that meant was that meant you couldn't go to the bar you wanted to go to. You couldn't go to the restaurant you wanted to go to. I mean, we shuttered schools. We closed businesses. We restricted travel. And in this country, that was seen as an assault on your personal freedom. And that was right where sort of the right lived. You know, the sort of the right wing crowd lived. And so they pushed back massively against that. And so it became an issue of freedom, personal autonomy and freedom. And so... Um, never, never would have predicted it. I would have guessed the opposite was true. I would have thought that when the vaccines were made, people would have seen this for what it was, a ticket out of this pandemic, but they didn't. They thought it was something that was forced upon them and they were going to do everything to push back. And what that meant was saying either the virus isn't that bad, so why are we mandating this? Or the vaccines are unsafe, so why are we mandating this? And that became a phenomenon of the right. You were much more likely to die if you voted for, for Donald Trump in 2020 than if you voted for Joe Biden. Who would have ever imagined that would have been true? Uh, and the interesting thing is, I, I guess both of them took the vaccine, and somehow the 
the followers didn't necessarily uh, split the same way. I, I've got to say, a lot of this stuff uh, uh, is so was so new and interesting because I got your soon-to-be-published book, Tell Me What When It's Over, which seems like a great title for uh, those of us who are dealing with with COVID uh, and stuff like that, it, you know, and, and I think right now as as we uh, deal with day-to-day -day living, um, like I said, we're, I, I had hoped we wouldn't be needing uh, to be reminded about what we should do for dealing with COVID. So I, I'm wondering, um, I mean, we've had periods where it's gone down. Uh, right now, though, I mean, I know more people that have had COVID in recent months than at any other time during the uh, during the pandemic. Uh, I mean, early on, I knew people who had more severe cases who were hospitalized and some uh, who had died. Uh, most most of the cases that I know of. Uh, are, are, I hate to say minor, but less severe than some of the ones I knew of before, but they're, they're fairly widespread. Um, so is this what we're going to live with is ups and downs and a little more, a little less, but we've got to get ready for periods of time when, when we're dealing with COVID? I think you said this exactly right. What happened was when we first confronted this virus and we had we were a blank slate, we had no population immunity, this virus was a killer. I think what's happened now is that you probably have about 98 plus percent of the population that has been either vaccinated or naturally infected or both. What a vaccine provides you, or not her previous infection provides you, is it probably assuming you're young and healthy, and I'm defining young, frankly, as anybody less than 70 years of age who's otherwise healthy, I think you probably are, and you've been vaccinated or naturally infected or both, you're probably protected against severe disease for a while, uh, years, if not longer, but not mild disease. I mean, mild, protection against mild disease is mediated by antibodies in your circulation, which will come down over time. Also, this virus continues to create new variants. So I think we're going to continue to have mild disease over and over again, which is true really for all these kinds of viruses, meaning short incubation period mucosal infections like influenza, respiratory syncytial virus. You get those infections over and over again. The goal of the vaccine is to, is to prevent severe infection, to keep you out of the hospital, to keep you out of the intensive care unit, to keep you out of the morgue. This vaccine does that, or previous infection does that. And so I think then the question becomes, who really needs these booster doses that are being given every year. And I think those are the people who really are in the highest risk groups for being hospitalized or dying, which is to say, uh, people who are what Rochelle Walensky, previous CDC director, called the elderly elderly. I like that phrase. She means like people over 75 or people who are immune compromised or people who have the kind of health problems like chronic lung disease, chronic heart disease, diabetes, obesity, to put them at high risk for pregnant people. I think those are the people who really are at risk. But the notion of having to vaccinate everybody every year over six months of age, like what we do with the influenza vaccine, I don't think really applies to this virus. But you said it exactly right. For the most part, you're not seeing severe disease and otherwise young healthy people, but you're still seeing mild disease and you always will. I mean, the pandemic, if you define pandemic as something that changes the way we live, work, or play, the pandemic is over. 
But the viruses, this virus is going to circulate for years, if not decades, if not longer. It's encouraging. So realistically, then, I mean, we've had um, the, the two initial doses, I guess, of, of most vaccines. Uh, I guess J&J &J was one dose. And then we've had, I don't know, what, four or five boosters uh, since that time. Uh, a healthy adult or or child, what should they have had or what should they have? Uh, because it sounds like, like you don't recommend that they, every time they announce a booster, that, that a healthy under 75-year-old uh, adult or child should uh, should get it. Right. I think if you've had three doses of the vaccine and, and two of those doses were separated by at least four months, I think you're, you're protected against severe disease likely for a long time. If you've had two doses of the vaccine plus a natural infection, I think the same thing is true, the so-called hybrid immunity. Um, but I think that otherwise young, healthy people don't need to keep getting boosted with this vaccine. We talk about this in, in the book. Okay. And what about... Uh, with the current situation, uh, this particular variant, how should we be managing ourselves? I mean, I go to uh, different places from restaurants to uh, concerts to movies and stuff like that. I see some people are wearing masks, some aren't wearing masks. Uh, some people, uh, I, I have a friend or two who won't go out to lunch with me and while there may be other reasons, uh, they, they just claim to not go out to lunch with anybody because they can't bring it home to, say, an immunocompromised spouse or things of this nature. Uh, I go to healthcare facilities. I see some physicians wearing masks, some not. Um, how, how should we manage the way that we live today? Well, so, so I think this virus, SARS-CoV-2, has now entered the pantheon of winter respiratory viruses, like influenza and, and, and respiratory syncytial virus, both of those viruses also cause tens of thousands of deaths every year. If we wanted to decrease our chance of getting infected with those viruses, and especially if you're an older person dying from those viruses, then we should, should, should do the same sort of masking and isolating and quarantine as we did in 2020. But we don't. We sort of accept those viruses. We've grandfathered them. And I think this virus is getting grandfathered in. I think the most, the, the, what you can do that makes the most sense. If you're sick, if you have a respiratory infection, congestion, cough, runny nose, fever, body aches, et cetera, you should stay home if you can. If you can't stay home, then you should wear a mask because that's just fair uh, to, to the people who you're about to come in contact with. If you're in a high-risk group, I think it's reasonable to get boosted, but realize you're going to get a mild infection. And if you're, if you're going to get an, if you get an infection and you're in a high-risk group, take an antiviral agent in the first few days, because that, that probably more than anything else will help keep you out of the hospital. Because those high-risk groups that I mentioned, one, one thing they have in common is that a number of people in that group aren't going to make a very good immune response, even to, to a vaccine. My, my mother's 95 years old. She got a booster dose of vaccine this year. I don't think that's going to do much for her. I think her immune system is such that she's unlikely to have a vigorous immune response. But were she to be exposed to this virus and have mild symptoms, she should get Paxlovid. And I think Paxlovid is underutilized. And a lot of people who are hospitalized with this virus could avoid hospitalization by taking Paxlovid early. What about um, 
I mean, there have been a lot of things suggested from, I, I know uh, Trump was president, he promoted, I think it was hydrochlorazone, uh, uh, different kinds of things are, uh, is there any any value in those as opposed to, say, an antiviral like Paxlovid? Right, so in mid-2020, the FDA actually approved through emergency use authorization for about three months, uh, something called hydroxychloroquine, which is an anti-malarial drug. Um, the Trump administration was convinced this would matter. They were looking for a magic medicine. Um, it didn't work to treat or prevent the disease, and the FDA very quickly withdrew its uh, its uh, authorization. Um, and then you hear other things like ivermectin, you know, vitamin C, vitamin D. Uh, none of that works. Uh, I think the the what works is is um, vaccines to prevent it, and certainly Paxlovid to treat it. And in the people, for example, um, uh, we tend to underuse uh, things like convalescent serum, which may start to come back as this virus continues to mutate. I mean, because not everybody um, can take an antiviral successfully. Not everybody um, can can uh, can be vaccinated successfully. And I think you'll start to see convalescent serum, at least in some groups, also coming back. But I think for the most part, we, we have gotten on top of this virus as much as one could get on top of it. It's, it's going to continue to circulate. It's going to continue to cause mild disease. And just be smart about it. You know, don't, 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 you know, if, if, if you're in a high-risk group and you have respiratory symptoms, test yourself. If, if you're not in a high-risk group, just assume that you have influenza, or respiratory syncytial virus, or, or human metanumavirus, or parainfluenza virus, and be good to your neighbor. I mean, don't go to work if you can avoid it. Wear a mask if you have to, but assume that you have one of those viruses. But if you're in a high-risk group, then you should test yourself. And if you're positive, then you should take Paxlovidurum. Well, if I'm hearing you correctly, then it's not that necessary for somebody to test themselves if they're not in a high-risk group. That's right. I think if you're like a healthy 25-year-old and you have respiratory symptoms, you're not going to be taking Paxlovid, that you're not in a group for whom Paxlovid is recommended. But you're infected with an, with an agent that can, can, can cause other people to suffer. And die. influenza can kill 60,000 people a year. I mean, respiratory syncytial virus kills tens of thousands of older adults every year. Um, so these other viruses, parainfluenza, human metanumaviruses, strains of human coronavirus can all do that. So be good to your neighbor and, and don't expose them to you. I mean, it's we used to call it absenteeism when people would, wouldn't show up uh, to work when they would have respiratory symptoms. Now I call it presenteeism, which is that they show up to work with respiratory symptoms and thus infect everybody around them, which isn't fair. But it sounds like uh, we're probably not going to have uh, another period of time when the schools are closed or that uh, businesses have to close or stores will close and so on. That uh, it'll be kind of like what we learned to live with with, with flu, that if you're smart, you, you take care of yourself. Um, but, you know, society doesn't change because you have the flu. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The, 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 we always talk about B cells, which make antibodies and antibody recognition. And when as this virus creates variants, which it does continually right now, it's the JN1 variant. Um, th those are immune evasive strains, but they're evasive to antibody recognition. They're not evasive to another part of your immune system called T cells. So T cells do a variety of things, but one thing T cells do is they kill virus infected cells. And the part of the virus that's recognized by T cells is really conserved. 
So, so it doesn't change. And, and so therefore, you're, you're, that's why we're still protected against severe disease, because T-cells are important. And the, the part of the virus that's recognized by T-cells hasn't really mutated away from T-cell recognition. If that ever happens, and it could, then we're starting all over again. Then we're back to doing what we did in 2020. Hopefully that won't happen. I really don't think it will happen. Great. Well, I appreciate all the work you're doing to, to ensure that it doesn't. I'd like to talk about your book a little bit. Uh, again, I'm really impressed by the title, Tell Me When It's Over, uh, which I guess you've answered and say it's never over. But uh, I, I do want the listeners to know, I mean, considering how much science is in there, it's very easy to read. Uh, it's, you know, and, and it's fascinating. I mean, I sat down and, and read it in, in the better part of a day, and I actually... Uh, had an NFL game playing in the background, uh, and still was able to concentrate on this and learned a lot. What uh, uh, what what made you decide to write the book directed at you know again this isn't something that that you have to be a doctor to uh, be able to understand and so on. Uh, I mean, it's so much wonderful information in it. How how you decide to do it? Thank you. Well, the first part of the subtitle probably explains it best, An Insider's Guide. Uh, when um, in April of 2020, when the virus was starting to kill people in this country, Francis Collins, who was head of the National Institutes of Health, asked me as well as uh, a couple dozen other sort of experts in the field to, to be some part of something called the active group, which is uh, accelerating COVID uh, technologies, innovations, and vaccines. And so what we did is we met frequently to basically advise pharmaceutical companies on how to move forward with either therapies like, like uh, antivirals or vaccines. And I'm also a member of the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. So when we met in December, um, to discuss Pfizer's vaccine and Moderna's vaccine, you know, I was a voting member. So I, I, I sort of had a, a front seat at how this all played out. And I think there were some things we did really well and some things we could have done better. And I think for me, this was a catharsis, just to sort of get it out there so that I can say, here's what I think we did really well. Here's things I think we could have done better. Um, and now I feel better. I just had to emotionally write this book so I could get it behind me because I do think there are things we could have done better. And um, and now it's much easier for me to say it. That's great. And again, it's such such a wonderful book. We're in a minute or two. We're going to try and find out how we can get it. I know it's coming out very soon. And uh, but uh, just from a curiosity standpoint, when when the thing was starting out, um, we frequently see uh, Dr. Fauci on uh, TV. Uh, who seemed like the, the really studying and knowledgeable and stuff like that. Um, uh, hard to believe, but a few years into it, uh, he's, he seems to be, again, like he have become politicized so that uh, for certain candidates, uh, dumping on, on Fauci seems to be a thing. Is, is he a good guy or... or, or, or you know, or some of the stuff justified. I have known Dr. Fauci for more than 30 years. He's a great guy. I mean, he he stepped forward when we needed somebody who could do what he did, which is to be able to take science and explain it in simple terms to the public. Thank goodness for Dr. Fauci. But I do think you're right. I think 
that pushback against um, against not just mandates, but against the CDC, against the FDA, sort of spilled over to him, and you know he became the the target for um, this pushback against, as Governor Ron DeSantis would say, you know the Washington edicts. They weren't going to they weren't going to accept that. They were going to push back on that, and he became an unfortunate target. I think you know also remember, and this is is something people have um, difficulty grasping. You learn as you go. I mean, there were there were some novel features about this virus. You know, when we sat down to make a decision about these vaccines, so you had a 40,000 person placebo controlled trial from, from Pfizer, which is it means 20,000 people got the vaccine. Moderna's was a 30,000 person placebo controlled trial, so 15,000 people got the vaccine. That means 35,000 people got the vaccine that you had data on. You were about to recommend that vaccine for hundreds of millions of people. You knew the other shoe was going to drop. You knew you were going to find out things that you didn't know yet, because that's always true, because medical innovations invariably have a learning curve, and invariably there's a human price to that curve, and that's what happened. I mean, we didn't know about myocarditis based on those tens of thousands of people, but we found out that later that, that you could get inflammation of your heart muscle. We didn't know about clotting, including severe clotting associated with J&J's vaccine, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, including fatal clotting, you know, which basically drove that vaccine off the market in May of, of 2023. And so people look at that and they go, see, you can't trust these people. They don't know what they're doing. But, you know, you just have to be open-minded to the fact that you're going to learn as you go. So, Dr. Fauci did say some things that ended up not being right. I said some things that ended up not being right. Anybody who, who commented on the media at some point would have said something that was wrong. And that doesn't mean that you can't trust them for anything they say from that point on. It just means that we learn as we go. And I think if you ask people, do you think we're going to know more? A hundred years from now in science and medicine than we know now, I think everyone would say yes. But but when it comes to this, your disease, or in this case, our pandemic, people want to believe you know everything you need to know when that's often not the case. Well, uh, talking about things that we should know about, um, what about long COVID? It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I've heard things described as long COVID that seem to have certain characteristics from others who say they have long COVID. You know, what, first of all, how how big a deal is it? How concerned should we be? And what is, uh, what is the effect of having long COVID? Well, so I think long COVID is more than one thing. I think it probably the, the, uh, the basis, the immunological or pathogenic basis of it differs. I think uh, some people, there may be that the virus continues to reproduce itself because of a, uh, an ability for their immune system to rid themselves of the virus. I think for some people, it causes a dysfunctional immune system. I think for some people, it can cause these sort of micro clotting, you know, that, that say can happen in the lungs or other organs. And, and, and also, I think for some people, there's a psychological component to having suffered a severe illness. There's other viruses can do this too. Influenza, you can argue, can cause longer term symptoms. Mono, you know, the Epstein Barr virus that's the cause of infectious mononucleosis can also cause long term symptoms. So I think it's it's going to be incumbent upon um, uh, scientists and, and clinicians to sort of home in on what are those different possible uh, etiologies of long COVID because they all require different treatments. And, and I think by lumping it all together, um, we make it, uh, we, we simplify something that's probably not going to be very simple. It's, it's very helpful to know. So my last question before we find out the specifics on getting the book and any other information, 
from you is uh, you've spent your professional life essentially uh, working with vaccines. Uh, the whole category is under attack at this point. How optimistic are you that, you know, we will return to a level of normalcy with, with respect to uh, how we treat vaccines? Well, I'm a generally an optimist. I mean, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles season ticket holder. But but what I would say is that um, I, I am surprised by what happened. I, I would have guessed that the opposite would have happened over the over COVID, that we would have seen vaccines as the hero that they were. But but I think that the, the anti-vaccine um, activists have really um, been able to take off, uh, much better funded. And I'll give you a specific example. Um, Richard Besser was the head of the CDC in 2009 during the swine flu pandemic, and he was great. He was in front of the media every other day explaining what this vaccine was, how it was made, what it could and couldn't do, what this virus was, what you could expect in terms of uh, who it would affect and how severely. And he was a model for how to, how to communicate to the public. And I saw him at a recent meeting of the National Foundation of Infectious Disease, and I went up to him and I said, Dr. Besser, you were great during that 2009 pandemic. You were a model for how to communicate science to the public. And he said, thank you, I could never do it today. Two reasons, one, politics, and two, social media. And I think that's what you're up against, that you weren't that we weren't up against before. And so what can I say? You fight the good fight. You have to just keep trying to put good information out there, knowing that we live in a divisive, cynical, litigious time, and do the best you can. I mean, the fact that you have somebody like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. running for president is remarkable to me. He's an anti-vaccine activist. His communications director is an anti-vaccine activist. I mean, that's where we are. I mean, Donald Trump, I would argue the greatest accomplishment of the Trump administration was Operation Warp Speed. I mean, he, his administration created two very effective vaccines in very short order because his administration put $11 billion into betting on six horses to win one race. Um, it was a model for how much we can do and how quickly. And yet, if anything, he distances himself from that uh, accomplishment. It's, uh, it's hard to watch. Yeah, I, I guess that's... Uh only comment somebody can have about that certainly somebody who has seen how, how many people have been helped over the years by uh you know the prevention of diseases that that used to really hospitalize and kill millions of people uh, i mean it's it, it is hard to watch um but uh you said you know uh, one of the best things you can do is put forth good information. And certainly your book really puts forth good information to, and, and I have to emphasize how easy it is to read, uh, to really learn the stuff, get some interesting uh, anecdotes about, about different people and some of the anti-vaxxers and other interesting anecdotes, if I'm not mistaken, I think one of them is that uh, I think Robert Kennedy's wife required some masking uh, or stuff for people to attend a party at their house. So um, anyway, but tell us a little bit. I know the book is coming out in days. Where are people going to be able to order it? Well, so you can get it off Amazon or a variety of other uh, websites that sell books, but Amazon's probably the easiest way to order it. 
Um, it should be available in bookstores as well, but um, Amazon is probably the easiest way to get it. Okay, and it's called Tell Me When It's Over, An Insider's Guide to Deciphering COVID Myths and Navigating Our Post-Pandemic World uh, by Paul A. Offit, MD. And uh, again, I can certainly vouch for and endorse it. We'll have to write a review on Amazon. Um, now, uh, what about you in general? Do you have a website or how, how do we find out more about what you have to say because it makes so much sense and you're so good at the way you communicate it? Yeah, I do have a website, which is like paul.offit.com uh, uh, paul or something like that. I can never remember it. But, but in any case, not, not hard to find me. And yeah, I'm going to, I also have a sub stack which um, I put out weekly. And I, I spent a lot of time talking about some of the things that are in this book and trying to keep people up to date on where we are uh, with COVID and so and the politics of all this. So I do have a Substack, which is free. So it's very easy to find. I don't know if you know about Substacks, but they're, they're sort of like a, an op-ed you get to write every week. Some people charge for their Substack. I don't because I just want to get the information out there. But um, I put that out there. It's probably the easiest way to keep up with me and with, with what I'm talking about. How do, how do people find that? Substack. I think you just search, Sam, probably the last person to ask these questions, but I think you just search on Google like Substack and my name, Paul Offit, and then you'll see it. And then all you have to do is just click subscribe. And every week to your email, you will get the, the, the thing that I just wrote. I usually post my Substacks on Monday, but it's, it's free. Okay, if my non-technical skills don't fail me too much, I will be subscribing <laughs> to uh, in the meantime, and, and we will have all this information in the show notes about where they, about the book, where they can get it, website and Substack. Um, anything I should have asked you but didn't before we close out? No, I think that was great, Dr. Kaiser. I really appreciate your having me on the program. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you being with us, Dr. Offit. Really honor us, and more importantly provided, you know, really good, actionable information that clears up a lot of myths and gives us some, some real guidelines for how to move forward. And uh, let's hope that you have increasingly less to do in the COVID area because people will have listened to you more and uh, as, as more people get immunity, so on, that uh, hopefully we'll We'll be able to relegate this to some of the other diseases that we've got use of living with and not fearing dying about. So again, uh, thanks very much for being with us. And this brings to a close another episode of Rejuvenaging with Dr. Ron Kaiser. I hope and trust that you all enjoyed and learned from this episode. And if you did, please uh, download it, save it, tell your friends about it. Uh, review and rate the episode, get Dr. Offit's book, and be back next week when we'll have another interesting guest who can help us lead our lives in an enthusiastic and healthy manner, although Dr. Offit's contribution will be really tough to top. Anyway, take care, and remember we are still dealing with a pandemic, so stay positive, but stay safe.